We are in the midst of the second renaissance. Till the old orders die, the new orders can't really find their feet. What was it like in the golden age of sustainability? My answer is we haven't had it yet. Welcome to the second renaissance, where we decode the rebirth of human creativity in a technology-driven world. In this second season, we explore how sustainability is elevating our human consciousness and catalyzing us to create within constraints. We decipher why now is the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity since the dawn of industrialization and what leaders can do to harness the winds of change. I'm Anders Sommer-Nielsen, global futurist, impact champion and father, and your host for The Second Renaissance. In this episode of The Second Renaissance on regenerative capitalism, I sit down with John Elkington, one of the wise elders and founders of the global sustainability movement. The Evening Standard named John among the thousand most influential people in London, describing him as a true green business guru and as an evangelist for corporate, social and environmental responsibility long before it was fashionable. A CSR international survey of the top 100 CSR leaders in the world placed John fourth after Al Gore, Barack Obama and the late Anita Roddick of The Body Shop and alongside Mohammed Yunus of the Grameen Bank. John was a faculty member of the World Economic Forum from 2002 to 2008 and is a visiting professor at Cranfield University School of Management, Imperial College and University College London. He has served on over 70 boards and advisory boards. He's won numerous awards and is the author or co-author of 20 books. John's Cannibals with Forks in 1997 popularized his triple bottom line concept and laid the foundations for sustainable business strategy globally. He's coined terms like environmental excellence, green growth, green consumer, and people, planet, and profit. The 20th book was published in April 2020 on the dawn of the pandemic, Green Swans, the coming boom in regenerative capitalism. It was an absolute honor to sit down with John, who I would like to think of as a real mentor in the green and sustainable space. I trust that you will enjoy this conversation and his foresight as much as I did. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Anders. I love the concept of the second renaissance and I look forward to the conversation. Yeah, well, we both missed the first one, so uh, hopefully we both <laughs> you're, get You're to... making assumptions there, but yes. <laughs> There we go. John, um, I had a uh, fantastic time uh, reading or as I did listen to uh, your fantastic book, uh, Green Swans. And um, as someone who's, uh, you know, studied uh, Nassim Taleb for many years and the notion of black swans, I want to lead us off by asking uh, you the question, what on earth are green swans and, and how are they different from black swans or even grey swans? Well, like you, I, I've, I've found uh, the work of um, Nassim Taleb riveting, fascinating, informative over quite some time. And I read his uh, book, the Black Swan, uh, when it came out, which I think was 2007, just ahead of the 
2007-2009 financial discontinuity, what we, whatever we now label it. And um, as, as people will remember, I mean, his, his notion was that black swans are things that come out of the blue. I mean, they completely take us by surprise. They have an impact which is just way off the, the current scale. Uh, and then very often afterwards, we sit down and try and work out what the hell's just happened to us and um, very often get the wrong end of the stick. So we set ourselves up to fail again because we don't properly understand what's just happened to us. So those are black swans. Some people say gray swans are things that we can sort of see coming but tend to ignore. So COVID-19, uh, Taleb himself said, was asked repeatedly whether... COVID-19 was a, um, a black swan and said, no, I mean, it just it, we saw it coming. We set up units within government. We published reports. We ignored them all. And, and in one case, at least, we shut down the unit uh, uh, in government. Um, so that's a great swan. I, there, there are lots of other swans, I'm sure, <laughs> in terms of coloration. But my notion was that green swans might be um, environment-related, sustainability-related, climate-related, and so on. Um, but uh, one of the, and I sort of willfully misinterpreted Taleb's own work by because he's talking about things that can either go negatively or they can go positive, but there are massive disruption on the way there. So for for some people, it's always going to be a negative. And I was thinking, well, what would happen if it was not taking you exponentially where you didn't want to go, but over time took you exponentially where you did want to go. And the difference between those two, there, there are a number of differences, but the most striking one is that things like the Ukraine, I mean, the, the, these things, we don't want to go there, and yet they happen. So we're sort of driven by um, events, whereas green swans are very different in the sense that they have to be worked towards and quite often over protracted timescales, you know, not just years, decades even, and possibly even generations as well. So that's where the idea came from. And so I love the metaphor. What, what are some examples of green swans that you're currently witnessing in, in your work that we can kind of anchor ourselves to? Well, I've had some delightful um, LinkedIn and, and uh, email messages from different parts of the world since the book came out, and that was more or less two years ago. Um from people who said, you know, I've now got green swan on my business card. And, you know, I've had that from places like the Philippines and Indonesia and so on. And the original intent was not that people would be able to say, you know, I'm the green swan officer or whatever, although that's very nice to have. The idea was that green swans are actually shifts in the system. So they're economic. Uh, they're social, they're political, they're cultural, they're technological. So to your question, Anders, I mean, I, uh, an example I would give, uh, there's a guy, um, science fiction uh, author, but also an energy analyst called Ramis Nam, uh, based in uh, uh, California. And he's looked uh, over quite some time at the uh, changing price points for renewable energy. Um, and one of the things he's demonstrated time and again is an ability to be a, a better predictor, a better forecaster than many other people in the field. But even he has been conservative, it turns out, in terms of the way in which uh, the price of, for example, solar and wind and battery uh, uh, produced power um, has been falling at a spectacular rate. That, to me, is a green swan. It's, it, it's an exponential 
uh, trajectory and something that is really, really important for issues like uh, climate change, but also over time, um, increased access to cheap, affordable uh, uh, power uh, energy. Um, so that would be one example. But the, the, there are examples from, I mean, if you look at the Sustainable Development Goals, 17 of them are published in 2015, um, every single one of those goals uh, has linked to it different types of um, green swan uh, trajectories. Question is, do we sit around and wait until they happen? Or do we work consciously and effectively towards making them happen? Yeah, because things like electrification and 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 solar etc i mean they they seem to be you know just like we have moore's law in the area of computing or the doubling of computing power every 18 to 24 months we have our own version when it comes to say solar right that they are also exponential uh, in terms of their efficiency and and the and the cost is coming down and I think in, 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 in many developed nations now, of course, the, the, the cost of solar is actually less than highly subsidized um, coal-fired uh, energy, for example. So, I mean, what's, you know, we, we hear about 2050 and, and 2030. To me, even as a futurist, you know, 2050 feels like a really long time away. And I'm not sure that people will, you know, be quite willing to, to, to make the changes like electrify everything, for example, which is requ- required for us to get to, to net zero. Um, if they keep hearing about this, you know, distant point of 2050, uh, what, what's what's your sense? Do we have enough fire under you know under the hood to actually get 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 started, or what's required for people to truly wake up? Well, I think if I was being asked to invest in in, in the interests of twenty fifty, I'd I'd, I'd 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 have second thoughts as well. But actually, it's 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 much more imminent and it's much more urgent than that might suggest. So, a couple of things. One is that if we look now at the uh, reaction of different parts of the world to what's happened with the Russian assault on Ukraine is that issues around energy, issues around food, issues around security and defense have rocketed to the uh, the top of the priority list. And things that were talked about for a very long time and ignored uh, are suddenly um, uh, being considered quite seriously. Um, I think one of the elements of the energy part of that story is that people are acutely aware that they're dependent on uh, particularly at the moment uh, from Russia, oil and gas, um, and in some cases uh, coal as well still. But people were beginning to realize that it's it's extremely dangerous, it's high risk to uh, have those um, dependencies. So you're starting to hear people talking about how do we not only break the links with Russia in terms of supply chains and so on, but how do we um, make our uh, energy systems simultaneously more secure and more sustainable. Now, I think that's a shift in, in, in um, uh, thinking once it would have been you either have security or have sustainability, you can't have them both. Uh, and I think that's shifting. To your question around um, 2050, 2040, whatever it might be, um, one of my very favorite uh, initiatives is called Rethink X, based in London and in uh, Silicon Valley. And what's extraordinary about the work of Rethink X, uh, you, you may well have come across it, but uh, it it started off with transportation and mobility. 
It then moved on to uh, cattle ranching and dairying. That one was simply in the United States. The, the studies are generally global. Third one was around energy. The fourth one around finance. The fifth one around you know, the civilizational challenges that we face. They all the 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 the, the analysis is all done from a a model, mathematical model that Tony Sieber uh, developed in, in in Silicon Valley, particularly initially around energy. And I just give you one or two examples. Uh, if if I take the transportation mobility study, it was about three years ago now. Um, they basically projected that by 2030, so not 2050, 2030, um, the uh, what we would see globally would be a 70 no sorry 50 percent increase in um, kilometers travelled worldwide by by all road wheel based. Um, uh, modes, uh, but at the same time, we see a seventy percent collapse in the revenues earned by the automotive sector, the oil sector, and so on. And, and, and this was from a bunch of different reasons: autonomous vehicles, shared uh, transport modes, and, and 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 so on. Now, even if they're out by ten to fifteen to twenty years, that is a massive existential shock to the incumbent industries that that um, think that the the the, the, um, the private motor car is is uh, the, the the way forward and will always run on uh, liquid uh, fuels um, they also looked at sort of i mentioned in terms of the us uh, cattle ranching and dairying and the results of their analysis there was by the mid 2030s something like 60% of the animals on american farms will no longer be there. They'll no longer be needed because when you build up a cow or an, a farm animal and you break it apart, uh, it's it's an extremely messy uh, business. And if you're thinking about China and sort of the vectors of, of um, uh, pandemics like, like pig farming and chicken farming and so on, if you could do that same pr um, process of producing uh, protein, uh, through precision fermentation, which is now uh, enabling us to produce everything from milk to leather, uh, but is a technology, so exactly like these other things, is is on one of these sort of spectacular exponential uh, um, decline trajectories in terms of cost, then maybe we don't do things in the way that we've traditionally done them in Australia, you know, with its massive cattle ranching operations. I think would also be vulnerable to these trends. And the political consequences are massive because many farms off, operate at the margins of profitability, uh, particularly across the United States. If they suddenly lose that margin because they can't sell the leather, they can't do whatever it happens to be, then you know, um, Trump may only be the beginning. So um, I don't think this is something for the 2040s and 2050. I think this is something that's happening now. And I think it's something that will have a really massive impact in the next seven uh, years or so towards 2030. Yeah, I mean, really interesting you say that because I was um, I was up in Queensland uh, in uh, a little place called Mackay uh, last week with the Resource Centre of Excellence or the Resources Centre of Excellence, I should say, together with uh, Dr. Ross Garneau, whose work I'm sure you're familiar with and who's advised many, many or you know, many governments here in Australia over the years. And it was interesting just, just even hearing in, in central um, and northern Queensland, which were where the delegates came from, 
you know, where metallurgical and, and, and thermal coal, of course, is, you know, uh, a massive interest and a, a massive economic interest to the region, as is beef. People there are really, really worried. And they're worried, it, you know, by the fact that, you know, they're now paying two Australian dollars per litre for their diesel or for their petrol. They're, they're noticing the, the increase in, in, in petrol prices to the point where they're going, oh, actually, maybe the, the next car that we'll get is, you know, an electric one. And so, you know, people are starting to feel it and starting to wake up, I think, to a science that maybe the pandemic to some degree actually got us to wake up to. People started actually looking at exponentiality and remembering, you know, year nine and year 10 maths and um, kind of going, hey, we, we should be paying attention to the data. Any, any thoughts on that? I think, um, again, just going back to Silicon Valley, one of the terms, phrases that you hear quite often there is that we live in a gradually then suddenly world. I mean, it tracks back to Hemingway, one of his uh, novels uh, and a character being asked, how did you go bankrupt? And the answer was gradually, then suddenly. And I think that's exactly what's happening now in our um, economies, uh, largely driven by technology, but not solely. I think people are uh, also um, waking up to the fact that the climate crisis is a real one. It has, and it's not something, again, that goes out of the 2050s. It's something that's actually having a material impact, as we've seen with the recent floods in Australia. Uh, and, you know, people are saying, how you know, how dare governments allow um, flooding to hit us you know, yet again? And we have the same things here in the UK. Um, and the answer to that is when you have a prime minister who holds up a block of coal and says, in, <laughs> and says you know, this is the future, you have an idiot, I, with the greatest respect. Uh, I mean, I, no, I, th I think prime ministers uh, come and go. Uh, we have an idiot in power in the UK. Uh, these are people who can talk about sometimes um, the need for a green revolution, a second renaissance or whatever it happens to be, but they haven't the vaguest clue on how that might uh, be delivered. And one thing that gives me immense joy and, 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 and um, hope in a way is I was just reading over the weekend uh, about a number of shopping malls uh, in the UK which are now transitioning to becoming science and, and innovation incubation hubs and so on and in some ways that, that's not simply you know oh good we've got a use for some of these sort of spaces which we're increasingly rattling around in and unable to find a meaningful use uh, for but that signals a cultural shift a mindset shift from one where we simply consume and we consume whatever the chinese or whatever can be encouraged to give us to a world where we invent the future and we really lean into the question of if our old economic models and our old technologies and our own business models and all the rest of it are not fit for purpose in the next few decades, how do we develop the next uh, ones, uh, the replacement ones, the substitutes? And I, it, it, there was just something about the almost the metaphorical uh, signaling of, of, of that shift from, from, from mass consumption to uh, innovation, which I, I find quite exciting. Well, there's a there's a website on the on the internet entirely dedicated to pictures of dead malls, so uh, worthwhile to check out some of the some of the ghost towns around the uh, around the internet and around the planet that exist um, when it the comes to malls. To, to malls. Yeah, exactly the ghost malls. Um, Fascinating idea and concept: this shift from consumption towards research uh, research and development. 
I mean, as a, as a as a researcher, as a, as a forecaster, as a you know, as a management uh, thinker, uh, maybe I can call you as well. Uh, your model of the three P's of people, planet, and profit, I find really really inspiring. And then you recalled it. Uh, do you want to just tell us a little bit about why why the three P's uh, or the triple bottom line? Um, why that suffered a little bit of a product recall in in your book the green swan thank you anders and 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 the original idea of the triple bottom line occurred to me at, um, back in 1994 and the people planet profit formulation came the following year 1995 and it was intriguing how the that spread because first countries like um uh, holland and scandinavia picked up on the triple bottom line but then for a period of time and i, I traveled every year for seven years to Australia and New Zealand, Australia and New Zealand picked up on it as well. So, and then after that, we had the Dow Jones Sustainability Indexes, which I worked with uh, as an advisor for nine years. We had the Global Reporting Initiative, and now we have the B Corporation movement around uh, the world, which I, I, I love. We incubated the B Lab um, UK uh, initiative for nine months in, in our uh, offices at, at Valence quite some years ago. So when I did the product recall, which the Harvard Business Review, which I did it through, told me was the first ever uh, product recall of a management concept, I did not mean to signal uh, that the idea was dead. Because anyone who's worked with, for example, car companies, I've worked with Ford, I've worked with Toyota, different, different companies in that sector, a product recall is not sort of putting a model on the spike uh, or sort of a product on the spike. It's saying there is something distinctively wrong with the design, which we've got to um, uh, correct, and therefore we'll, we'll do a, a big pullback of that part of the global automotive fleet. So what I was trying to signal was that there are ways in which the triple bottom line, people, planet, profit, is being interpreted, which are wrong, fundamentally wrong. So, for example, when I did the the, the, the first book on it all, which was Cannibals with Forks back in 1997, what I was saying was that the triple bottom line required integrated solutions. So you, you, you needed to develop solutions, business models, whatever they were, which which were positive, at worst neutral, on all three dimensions. Uh, what we'd seen, uh, in contrast, was that many people were saying, you know, we love the triple bottom line. Uh, economic bit, well, we, you know, we make a profit, so that's the financial bit uh, taken off. The economic agenda is much bigger than that, clearly, and, and, and the financial performance is, is an important but not um, uh, overwhelmingly important part of that economic influence that a company or a business or sector can have. Well, we employ people, you know, we give people what they want, the products and services they need to live uh, sensible lives and so on. Well, the social agenda, again, is much broader than that might suggest. But then typically what people would, I, we heard people saying was, so we're doing all of that good stuff. It's a shame about the environment. But we're thinking about this in a triple bottom line uh, way, so well done us. Uh, and Or it might be, you know, we're, we're doing the economic and the, the, the environmental piece, shame about the social side, we pay, pay less than minimum wages, but, you know, we can't operate otherwise. Um, so it was, a, it was a provocation. It was saying, if that's what you're thinking about, you have not moved on in the way that the original uh, uh, intent was that you should. Um, what was extraordinary, so that 2018, I did the recall, 
was the the response was overwhelmingly positive. Most people understood exactly what I was trying to do. There were a few people who said, "How dare you?" Because their their whole livelihood was predicated on 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 this being out there and and, and used in a diluted. Um, uh, version. Yeah, too, too um, many too many chief sustainability officers had been using it in management meetings, and then all of a sudden it was recalled. Absolutely. Um, but I mean, I, I think the chief sustainability officer role is a crucial transitional role, uh, really, really important. Some great people uh, in uh, uh, playing that sort of role in major companies. So nothing against them, but unfortunately, it was a trade-off mindset. And what I was saying was. Uh, and what we what we concluded um, after a um, year, 18 months, we we launched something called the Tomorrow's Capitalism Inquiry with the backing of mainly companies, um, was that in many ways, the triple bottom line and other concepts like it, like uh, ESG and so on, have been largely applied within a responsibility frame. So we, as a company, what we want to do is we want to be better, we want to be nicer, we want to be a bit more transparent, we want to engage a few more of our stakeholders, uh, and then we'll be responsible. And what we're seeing now in, in, in area after area of our uh, economies, our societies, our biosphere, whatever, is things are starting to wobble. And just a few years back, you started to hear CEOs and, and, and politicians talking about resilience resilient supply chains, resilient communities, resilient whatever it might be. And the reason is that our system as a whole is now no longer fit for purpose. And so what we're arguing is that they're actually in, in the way that there were once three Ps, perhaps you can step up one slot in each case and go to three Rs. Responsibility, resilience, which is the nature of the challenges that we now face and regeneration because the only way to ensure the long-term health and well-being of, of, of the systems on which we depend is to regenerate them uh, and that's where we are now and it's immensely exciting but it's it's a humongous set of challenges that we now face which is why again i think most of the political leaders we have and many ceos again are not fit for purpose there is this notion that at least part of the capitalist world is waking up and um, John Mackey and Raj Sisodia call it conscious capitalism. And, you know, there's this uh, notion of spiral dynamics, you know, the fact that we're sort of shifting potentially the sort of zeitgeist of the era from very sort of individualistic, I first focus to now maybe evolving back up into a sort of a, a communitarian, we focused area or era, epoch, as you might call it. And um, part of that conversation is around the circular economy, which is, of course, focused on regeneration. Um, is that an area that you think positively about, this sort of shift from the linear economy to the circular economy? And, and, and if so, are there some examples that you find heartening? Yeah, I mean, I think the circular economy uh, notion has been around for a very long time. You can find in places like 100 years ago in Silesia and so on, there were hundreds of um, companies, businesses that were involved in uh, semi-circular uh, ecosystems at that point in the 90s, I worked with Nova Nordisk in Denmark, and they were part of what was called an industrial ecosystem in Kalimburg. Um, so, and, and that was multiple industries and businesses coming together to share wastes and, and, and so on. So the circular economy, when Ellen MacArthur came up with that branding and launched her foundation, 
wasn't new, but she certainly jumped it to a very different level. And you now have people like Kate Rayworth, uh, the economist, thinking about the donut uh, economy uh, approach. So I think I think that's immensely exciting. The one thing I would say, though, is that I don't think we work primarily with businesses who are trying to move in the right direction. And some of them are actually doing remarkably uh, well in that respect. But I don't think that the world as a whole is going to decide we want to be circular, regenerative, all of this good stuff, and then move in an integrated way. We don't do that as a species. If you go back, as I'm sure you have, to the first Renaissance, it was an absolute furious mess. I mean, it was everyone was fighting everyone else. Uh, there was sort of public burnings and all the rest of it. If you'd gone back in a time machine to that point and asked people, what's it like being in the Renaissance? They wouldn't have had a clue of what you were talking about because much of what we now look back and think, wasn't that wonderful, was done by very small groups of people operating, not independently because the connections were increasingly forming different uh, media and um, print technologies over time and so on, uh, accelerated the spread of ideas. So I absolutely think that we're in one of those times again, but it is going to be phenomenally messy. And therefore, I think there is going to be a set of dynamics that are going to be, forgive the term, but monstrously disruptive. Uh, most of the brand names that we know, most of the companies we know won't be there in 15 years. Uh, they may be there in, in, in spirit or parts of their, their businesses and some of their assets will have been acquired by others. But the scale of the change that is now coming, us, I think for many people is unimaginable. Uh, and even when they do try and imagine it, it's so disconcertingly major that they, they, they think, well, you know, I'll leave it for later, I'll leave it to somebody else. Uh, but if those companies that do are just, if not doomed, I think um, going to find themselves on the wrong side, as Shell's CEO uh, recently put it, the wrong side. So that of idea of, of the wrong side of history and, and the idea of being fit for purpose, I think in the book you call it future fit. I mean, we're seeing murmurs of that now with you know, activist investors like Engine Number One, you know, getting into Exxon and, and removing climate skeptics from the board, or, you know, Larry Fink uh, heralding a, a new era of ESG in, in investing. And, and of course, uh, we're seeing, you know, a, a large flight of capital away from, you know, supposedly stranded assets towards, you know, ESG compliant or ESG leaders. Is that is that what's happening? Is it is it the fact that you know the the, the smart movie? Move, sorry, the, 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 easy to say if you're Swedish. The smart money is already moving in a particular direction because they realise that they have to. I mean, is is it a profit motive? Is it doing the right thing motive? Is it a bit of both? What what do you think is is heralding this paradigm shift? Well, I, I, <laughs> it's a great question, Anders, and I would say there's still an amazing amount of dumb or even idiotic money out there which just thinks things will reset back to the way they were uh, over time. I mean, I, people have dismissed Larry Fink's um, annual letters to Investee, uh, the CEOs of Investee companies. I think they're immensely important because I think they're signaling that the some of the, the, the biggest financial um, operations institutions uh, in, in our modern economies 
are waking up to the fact that what we've been doing today just simply won't pass muster in what comes next. So I think I think that's uh, important. It's really clear that um, the pushback is uh, already underway. I mean, I, I saw the other day um, BlackRock, I think, being told by the Texas State Pension Fund that um, we want fossil fuels, and if you ban fossil fuels, we're not going to put our state pension fund, which is significant, uh, through BlackRock. Um, so, you know, th this is why I say that this period of history will be contested and, and, and pretty fretful uh, at times. Um, and yet that's how history happens. That's how th when you I, I've been saying for quite some years now that we're going into a U-bend where a, 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 a global order, geopolitical, macroeconomic that we've all grown up in, that we all take for granted, that tracks back to, for example, the Marshall Plan and Bretton Woods and so on, is fraying. And it, 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 to some degree, it's unraveling. And every time that that happens, and again, I've been saying this for years, and, and people think I'm a bit like a, an Old Testament prophet, whether you, whether you like it or not, you get a major war during that period. And I think the Ukraine is only the beginning of that major war. I think China is running a very major risk of a collision uh, with the United States uh, and its allies. So, you know, at times I sound you know, absolutely bleak and we're going to hell in a handbasket and perhaps in some areas we are. But in a way, until the old order really properly starts to die, the new orders can't really find their feet uh, effectively. So I, I, I actually, weirdly, now I'm more optimistic than I have been at any time in my working life over 50 years because I think the old order is um, uh, breaking apart. And therefore, the opportunity to drive really systemic structural change is off the scale greater. But things have to get, I think, significantly worse before people really allow that to happen. It sounds like you're forecasting some level of, you know, creative destruction here that, you know, that almost there will be some kind of phoenix-like moment when we, you know, re-emerge as, as humanity, hopefully more conscious and, and, and aware and more responsible and resilient and and regenerative potentially but it might not come without some major major upheaval i think that's the case and i think in a way when i when i i, I mean i gave up economics at university in 1968 after one year of study and and the two economists who really really had a big influence on both my thinking about economics and my decision not to pursue it uh, were Nikolai Kondratiev and Joseph Schumpeter, and both of, you, uh, both of them, as you know, saying the same thing, that economics, economies don't go in straight lines. They, they have these big wave structures that go through them, big cycles. And I think that's what's happening uh, now, that, that, that a, um, a set of waves that are almost not independent of each other, but economic and technological and political and so on, all sort of happening at the same time. Uh, time and that's profoundly disconcerting uh, for people. So I do not expect the world, with a capital W, to move in the directions that you just outlined as you know secular and regenerative and the rest of it. I think bits of the world will, and if they turn out to be successful with that, then others will follow. But you're still going to have a lot of outliers, a lot of people who decide not to go in that direction, 
because it may undercut other things that they want to do, like run a despotism or a tyranny or whatever it might be. Um, because so many of the changes that we're now seeing depend on digital technologies, which are extraordinary and ex exponential, the rest of it, but have this tendency to rattle the bars on existing political cages, uh, that they can be quite high risk. And, and that's as true in the United States, where Facebook has very clearly undermined uh, democracy, uh, as it is in, you know, uh, more complicated parts of the world, even more complicated parts of the world. There's this sense of, of digital technologies. And sometimes the worry is that, you know, these uh, Silicon Valley or, you know, Bangalore-based companies, um, you know, while while they're massively uh, profitable and massively influential, they just don't employ uh, as many people as maybe an, an, an old legacy, you know, physical analog company might have once upon a time done in, in Detroit or uh, at a McDonald's, for example. And, and so, you know, that raises questions in terms of, equity and, and equality and, and all the rest. Um, of course, many people are saying, hey, we might have things like universal basic income in the future when, when the robots take our jobs. And I guess an associated concept to all of that is the fourth industrial revolution, which is this sort of intersection of um, when digital, physical, and, and I guess it's biological systems intersect. Um, we have this am amazing new industrial revolution that, that's been her heralded by uh, the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, etc. So I'm curious, you know, is there an intersection here between the fourth industrial revolution and, and sustainability? Absolutely. And I think Klaus uh, and his colleagues have, have made that clear over time and the work of Rethink X, which is much more granular than what the World Economic Forum have uh, been doing. Uh, just makes this point in spades in the sense that if you, for example, with cattle ranching, remove animals uh, from the landscape which are inappropriate for that landscape, now they may be more appropriate in, uh, in the Midwest, the United States, than perhaps they are in some parts of Australia, just to take one example, uh, you can start doing other things with that land. And one thing you can do about it, particularly as climate um uh, change presses in is you can regenerate ecosystems and start capturing and storing um, uh, carbon in, in not novel ways because nature's done this historically but 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 in a way which is human directed and that would be if not novel because uh, you had it during the uh, depression in the United States the um, the conservation corps or or, or whatever um, I think this is an immensely exciting time. There are several missing pieces, apart from the political will, which will come. But one of them is economics uh, and linked, because we don't properly value some of the things that we've now got to do, or in, in some cases already doing. Uh, and one of the things that's got to happen alongside that is that the incentive structures in our uh, societies and economies have to better align with what we now need to do. I was watching a television program last night on the River Severn uh, in the southwest of uh, England uh, where um, farmers have been encouraged to uh, allow their fields to be used as uh, 
reservoirs for floodwaters when those floodwaters come through. But <laughs> they were all making the point was, you know, we, we, we're happy to do this, but it's a the, the, it involves sacrificing a lot of crop productivity. So society, if this is going to be sustained and let alone expanded, is going to have to work out how to pay us for the environmental services that we're uh, providing. So in that space, I think there's an incredibly exciting set of challenges, which which people like, um, well, Kate Rayworth, obviously, but Mariana Mazzucato and others in the economics field are now stepping up to uh, address. I, 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 normally, this these sorts of things would take decades. Um, but uh, the one thing I learned from when I was very young, I, when I was 14, I read a book um, by Thomas Kuhn called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And what he was talking about was paradigm shifts. He introduced the, the notion of paradigm shifts, as you will know. But one of the things he, he said, which I always forgot, or when I, when I thought about it, I remembered, I thought that can't be right, was that he, talk, he said that real um, paradigm shifts take 70 to 80 years to crank through because you need to lose all the people infected with the old paradigm, then the people that they taught, and only then can things really break through. Well, I actually think we're 60 plus years into the paradigm shift that happened in the early, late 50s, early 60s, Rachel Carson, all of that sort of good stuff. Um, and what that suggests to me, and again, Kuhn said it, is that in the final stages of the shift, things go spectacularly fast because people start to accept that new reality and they move en masse. Whereas up until that point, they've been quite happily anchored in the, the, the old order. That's where I think we are, for better or worse. With, with the concept of um, digital, there's also this idea of you know, green tech. Um, we've alluded to, to, to solar before. Um, we know sometimes some of these, you know, renewable energies um, get criticised. Whether it's, you know, insects on the rotor blade of, you know, wind farms, or it's, you know, the whole scale removal of um, of desert tortoises in the Mojave Desert to make waves for for solar farms. I think that is an important part of the conversation but how do we sort of how do we balance these interests and how do we ensure that those types of stories don't become the excuse not to do something but in a in a holistic manner i don't think there's a any easy answer to that question anders but i do think what's happening i thought i is- thought you would have something for us there <laughs> I've, I've got some answers, but I don't. I don't think they're easy in the sense that um, they are. They're evolving. They're emergent, but they're not yet in the fit state to sort of suddenly jump across and become the entire system. So, for example, uh, biomimicry—the idea that we would learn from nature to come up with new uh, technologies—I I, I was on Janine Benyus's board. Of, Biomimicry 3.8 for about six years. And I, I love the work that people like that are doing. And there are places in the world now where you know, a bank in Zimbabwe is based on the structure of a termite hill and is self-cooling uh, in quite uh, hot uh, environments. Um, you've got you know, the, the bullet chain, sh- sh- sorry, bullet train, the Shizengan in um uh, Japan, which is based on you know sort of uh, a kingfisher's 
skull shape and so on. So biomimicry is out there. I think over time it will become a fundamental part of design, of engineering, of architecture and so on. But at the same time, you mentioned the fourth industrial revolution and you mentioned biology as you know one of the components of that. Well, the, 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 the area of synthetic biology is absolutely fascinating. I, I edited a, a biotechnology newsletter uh, for about 15 years, as, as a, more or less as a hobby, although it was a, a business proposition, but back in the early 80s into the 90s. And at that time, what I saw was a lot of money going into biotechnology and genetic engineering companies. And I would go and meet those people and they would say, well, of course, what we want to do is we want to take cellulose from wood and we want to turn it into energy. or We want to take contaminated sites and clean them up using microbial uh, solutions or whatever it might be. But then the inevitable happened, which was that uh, it became cancer related. It became HIV AIDS related and all the money went in to human healthcare. But now what you're seeing is those early, wider, sort of green ambitions coming back into the uh, play. And I've been approached by two really big um, synthetic biology uh, uh, organizations, both of them based in the US, in the last three or four weeks. And both of them are saying, now we're doing a lot of this good stuff, but we actually want to sort of accelerate that. So. I'm again. I'm I'm optimistic. Not that the technology will um, inevitably take us where we want to go, but that it's got the potential to do that if we get involved in the right way and in the right um, timing. In a way, I think timing in all of this is crucial. And and again, if you if you miss the wave on the Renaissance, maybe your principality got pushed over the edge, it, it, it disappeared. I mean, these are very turbulent times, very disruptive times. But for younger people coming into this space, I think, and I, I've often been asked by younger people who they just say, what was it like in the golden age of sustainability or you know the green revolution or whatever? And my answer is we haven't had it yet. That's still out there. And I think these people who are coming into this sector now will be the ones who experience that in full measure. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting because, you know, luckily after, you know, two and a half years of, of not seeing my parents or having my children not, not seeing their grandparents, um, in the case of my four-month-old Aurelian, he's never met his grandparents up until just a few weeks ago. It's lovely to have my dad out from, from Sweden at the moment in Sydney, Australia. And... Um, and Dad was sharing with me what he's paying for uh, energy in 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 Sweden, as as you know, and a lot of part of lot many parts of Europe, um, they've endured a uh, you know horrible winter of uh, very expensive um, power bills. And he was sort of saying that while they've been in Australia now for a month, you know their their power bills have gone down from something like three thousand Aussie dollars to about five hundred. Uh, because they don't need to heat the house. And he was also saying to me when I'm recycling, um, you know, paper cardboard and, and, and egg cartons, etc. he said, why are you doing that? That stuff burns so well. We've resorted to, you know, burning more firewood uh, because that way we can keep our electricity bills down. And my, my parents like to think of themselves as, as quite green. Um, and I'm going, you're actually, you know, you're burning uh, wood and, and, and paper and emitting a lot. Um, 
to try and keep your your power bills down. I think again, it's this sort of you know constant sort of balancing and 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 trying to you know they they're thinking that what they're doing is very very natural, but of course, you know that that is a huge emitter of. Um, of gases and and doing things like burning dung and 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 um, other things, of course, is a massive you know polluter as well. And so I think it's quite heartening that you think that maybe the the, the golden age is potentially now or, or maybe a few years away. More than a few years, but I, I I think it it can come. And and one of the problems, and it's 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 raised by your parents' experience or your interpretation of their experience. There there are many confounding aspects of this. So, for example, if you look at, you mentioned dung, and you think about India, where a huge amount of dung and other things are biomass uh, burned every year, and you have this sort of intense smog that sits over the region. I mean, anyone who's flown into um, a uh, Indian city will remember the taste as you're coming into land of the the burning, and I once I think it was New Delhi. I went went into the airport uh, near there, and there was this cloud of smog hanging in the airport building itself uh, because of the scale of the problem. Well, if you remove that, which it would be a good thing for human health, you actually then have problems with um, climate change. These things are so. Uh, closely interlinked. And I think one of the things that we've got to develop very, very fast is the capacity for truly system or systemic thinking. Um, and I you know it's, it's not given to many people in the human species uh, to be able to do that um, properly. And it just, it, many years ago, I think about 35 years ago, I, I um, got, actually 1991, uh, I got a Financial Times cartoonist, Ingram Penn, who still is, I think, their best cartoonist, to do me a, um, a cartoon of a boardroom setting with the, the, the normal functions there, but sitting around the table, a fish in a pinstripe suit, a woman conspicuously from the what we perhaps would have then called the third world, and a robot. And the reason was the robot, well, it was nature, society, and, and, and then the long-term uh, future, and I, I think I, I visited companies like uh, HP and DeepMind, now part of Google, to talk to some of the people developing uh, artificial uh, intelligence systems. And I think within again ten to fifteen years, every board will be served, and it's going to be it's going to be within this decade. Every board will be served by extremely powerful uh, artificial intelligences. Um, which help them come to grips with some of these sort of bigger systemic issues that we now uh, face. Again, not guaranteed. We're going to have to push these people in that direction. But I've met many people, in, particularly in DeepMind, this is the way they think, this is what they want to do, this is what they see uh, their career as involving. So let's support them. We're, we're nearly into the, the, the final innings here. So um, I'm curious if you if you... Just engaged with me for a moment into this um, thought experiment of what capitalism needs to look like by the year 2030 um, for us to get even remotely close to achieving the objectives we need to. Um, you know, what did we get right if we actually transformed capitalism and more conscious capitalism by the year 2030? And what would be a, a dystopian version that we really should avoid, and what would be the you know the trappings that we have to 
carefully avoid over the next eight years? Well, I'm reading, I've just started a novel called uh, Sell Us the Rope. And it, it's, it's, a, it's based around a visit that Stalin made to London in 1905. And it refers out to the line, you know, capitalists will sell uh, uh, their uh, eventual uh, destroyers the rope that needed to hang themselves just, just for the, you know, the financial return. Uh, and, 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 and capitalism will always have those sorts of dysfunctions. It, 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 in many ways, it aggravates some of the worst elements of the human psyche you know greed is good and all, all the rest of it i've often thought of capitalism as pretty much like a nuclear reactor you know you have to wrap it around with lead and with concrete and with you know water-based cooling services and so on electronic monitoring systems if it's going to be uh, effective and doing what you really wanted to do capitalism is exactly like that and what we have unfortunately is a tendency for political leaders and regulators and so on, to become complacent because things haven't gone wrong. And largely that's because the old regulatory systems were actually largely doing what they were meant to do. We tend to strip away the rules and the controls and the standards and so on. And then things just inevitably go berserk. So um, I think a future capitalism that properly worked would firstly be properly regulated uh, and with people who are not corrupted and are not corruptible. I mean, in the United States, you have campaign finance and all the rest of it. Companies like ExxonMobil, which I think in time, I had a very public collision with their then CEO, um, Rex Tillerson, um, before he became uh, Trump's Secretary of State. Um, and I think ExxonMobil has been criminal. And I think some of these very large fossil fuel companies over time will be exposed as having, with criminal intent, uh, deflected rules and regulations that would have properly constrained their operations. That cannot be allowed if we're going to make sense of all of this. And the problem is, just as you have tax havens in my own country, my own city of London, have been these sort of cesspools recently of uh, not just Russian wealth, uh, but, you know, the, the, the oligarchs from different parts of the world. And now it's going to the UAE because we're starting to squeeze down on it. But you'll always have those remaining sort of reservoirs of, of bad practice. And so we've got to have the international capacity, not just the national capacity, to regulate and squeeze down on that sort of activity. I think the second thing is that economics has to change and change fundamentally. I think the the world of um, Milton Friedman, I, he was a genius. He was an extraordinary uh, character and an amazingly intelligent person. But his disciples, the people who picked up what he had had um, suggested was the way forward, were delusional. They, they, they felt simply, you know, the only purpose of business is to do what business does, which is make a profit if you're lucky. Um, and that is delusional. It's just you, you can't have businesses that sustain over time um, uh, unless they take a much bigger picture into account. And that goes back to economics, not just to corporate strategy or corporate mission statements or purpose or all of this good stuff, although that's all relevant. But I also think that something else is changing, and I think that is that younger people, and I don't want to dump the whole thing in their laps, but uh, younger people think differently. 
they they increasingly have whether they're properly articulated or not values which have been again been building for 50 to 60 uh, years and and uh, you know many of the people who came up with the countercultural ideas of the 1960s and 1970s then got sort of corrupted they become you know yuppies and, and drove sport utility vehicles and so on um nonetheless the agenda the change agenda that they were trying to promote some of them um is absolutely necessary now will be delivered now not everywhere but by um organizations sectors economies societies that just want to be part of a better future um scandinavia you mentioned i mean i think historically uh it's been the source of many of these sorts of innovations it'd be very interesting to see whether it is uh, next time round i've just come back from costa rica and i think i've never i've been at worked in half a dozen central and south american uh, countries i've never been to costa rica before but the innovation that's now going on there on how do you pay people for regenerating land you know what used to be uh, farmland now going back to uh, forest um how, how do you put a value on that then how do you uh, reward people and incentivize them the experimentation is happening all around us the question is whether we're paying enough attention because it's quite fragmented uh, at the moment but i again i i find it an immensely exciting time uh, in all of this and uh, every time i look at an audience i i spoke at a couple of conferences uh, last week and i looked out at the audience and i said to them um it used to be i'd know a lot of the people in the uh, the, the 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 conference venue now i know almost nobody i mean i know some but i mean almost nobody and i think that's a, a very very welcome indication that more and more new people are being pulled into this because it's the mainstream now it's not it's not just on the edges and you know fringy this this is the future do you want to be part of that or not i think you know what this sort of triggers in my own thinking is you know my my western neighbor of um of Norway uh, back in Scandinavia, which is often heralded as one of the greenest countries in the world. Um, you know, Tesla has 14% market share, you know, EV sales in terms of new car sales last year was 65% and 97% renewables is, is the, is their share of, um, of, uh, the, uh, you know, of the population's electricity usage in terms of where they get their power from. Very roundabout way of saying it, um, but you know we have these green associations with Norway, which is which is lovely, and they're, they're certainly doing their bit as a nation to go net zero by twenty thirty. But I think they're also you know a very stark reminder or a positive reminder that you don't have to be perfect; you just have to get started. Because of course, what's funding a lot of this is the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund, which is based on oil and gas revenues and and and, and taxes, right? So. I always say, hey, you know, you don't have to be perfect, but you do need to get started to ensure that your future fit. Well, it, it was interesting in a couple of places in Costa Rica, it was sort of almost out in the sticks, one might say. I saw the early presence of uh, electric vehicle charging points. And, 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 and the point, yes, the Sovereign Wealth Fund in Norway is, is, is funding a lot of this sort of... Um, leadership and, and, and innovation and so on. But that the early adopters drive down the price point. It goes back to that sort of solar wind battery 
price point sort of extraordinary sort of decline in in the cost of these um, technologies and uh, and their contributions to our economies. Um, as those technologies become firstly uh, de-risked in the sense that they actually tend to work and they tend to work uh, a lot more effectively and they tend to be cheaper and all the rest of it, then some of the other parts of the world sort of can buy into those. Um, so you mentioned green technology earlier on. I think we've had in relation to clean technology, a number of stutters where you had um, uh, investors, venture capitalists piling into clean technology at, at, in retrospect, too early a stage in the evolution of those sectors uh, to sort of just absorb all of that capital and do sensible things with it. So you then have that delusional, no, disillusion uh, period. It's the hype cycle. I mean, you know, we've, so many of these areas have gone rocketing up uh, the hype cycle and they've become plummeting down on the other side, thinking, you know, this is never going to work. And behind the scenes, these things are now sort of gradually embedding themselves in our uh, realities and our economies and so on. And I think that's immensely exciting. But we will see many people being spooked by that, digging in their heels. Putin is probably the most extreme example at the moment, but he's not alone. We've got an election finally, um, John, uh, here in Australia. And I, as, a, as a Swedish Australian, but with dual citizenships, so I, I do get to vote. I, I'm curious, you've talked about, you know, the individual, but also, you know, systemic shifts. Um, Australia certainly has not been a sustainability leader to, to date. What can people in, in Australia or elsewhere do, either uh, individually or, or, or in influencing systemic change do? What would, you, what would be your sort of call to arms to th things you can do at home or, or how you can influence systemic shifts? Well, the first thing is, uh, for God's sake, vote. I mean, because you know, particularly younger people now uh, in some parts of the world are showing less of an inclination uh, to vote, uh, almost going back to the 60s. And, it, you know, why would I vote? It only encourages them. But we do need to uh, make our uh, thoughts register. I, 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 as I said earlier on, I spent quite a lot of time in Australia over the years. And, and one of the moments where I saw things shift for a while at least, was around 1989, 1990, uh, where the ozone hole came up over Melbourne, where uh, sewage pollution around Bondi Beach and, and other, and, and they shut down the Sydney um, fish market. These things started to press in through the media on ordinary people. Uh, and I, I've got a couple of Australian friends who've had their homes burned down and and you know some of this stuff it, it it takes a while for people to really wake up but in a way doing small things is still important recycling and energy efficiency and all the rest of it but if your home in which you do all of that is going to burn down inevitably because of what the australian government continues to do by way of um climate policy well that's actually rather short-sighted so i think this is a political challenge it has to be dealt with uh, politically I think where presidents and prime ministers fail to pick it up, I, firstly, that's a betrayal. That's a betrayal of their people, whether they've voted for them or not. Uh, but what we're seeing is a sort of uh, decentralization where if, if the center won't do it, the city mayors and people like that start to do it, the heads of states and, and, and so on. 
And you've, in my work in the United States, I've seen this regular pulsing where a new agenda comes in. The federal system just won't do it. So the states and the cities do it. And if you're a company, it's an absolute screaming nightmare because suddenly you're faced with all of these different strategies and rules and standards and so on. So you then get the company starting to lobby for sort of a more coherent federal approach. So somehow you need to almost this accordion sort of um, dynamic where, where we go one way in order to then over time travel back in the other uh, direction. But I think this is an immensely important election in Australia, just as you know the, the, the French election this year is again uh, immensely important, always important elections, but this seems to be a, an interesting year. Good luck with it. Uh, my fingers are very firmly crossed. And I should be much more aware of the, the alternatives to the incumbent, uh, who I, I really do not admire, to put it mildly. Um, but uh, yeah, good luck. Yeah, I think there are some really, really positive signs with the Climate 200 movement here in Australia. Uh, now funding independence in, in key uh, marginal seats and also some very safe liberal seats. And so uh, get out there and, and, and vote for all those independents because they could be holding the balance of powers and they all have a very, very strong climate agenda. So that's, uh, that's our little plug uh, from, from, from this end as well. You asked me very specifically what should people do. I mean, you know, the, the, the obvious long-established things are recycle and all the right, buy an electric vehicle if you can afford it. Talk to people. Conversations are absolutely crucial in this. It's amazing how often you get that dynamic of somebody having read all of this stuff in the media for generations and ignored it, but they suddenly get it from their grandmother or their grandchild or whatever it happens to be talk to people and if the the election is an excuse to do more of that do it but however you do it uh, firstly make sure that you're properly informed <laughs> but then for heaven's sake talk to people and i think speaking of great dialogue thank you for 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 being a great conversationalist and, and certainly opening our, our hearts and minds around the planet to to this important topic i know uh, you're you're one of the uh, one of the people on uh, whose shoulders um, the next generation is is standing, and hopefully there's a few of us that can take up the baton as well and 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 continue on your really great work, uh, John. Um, finally, if if people want to find out a, a little bit more about uh, your work or Volans or um, or some of the things you get really excited about. Uh, where can they find out more? Well, thank you for the question. And I hope it's more than a few sort of coming in behind. And my sense is that it, it, it is a massive mainstreaming movement now. But um, probably two uh, links would be, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter and so on. Uh, on Twitter, I'm Volance John, V-O-L-A-N-S, John. Um, but the two websites would be Volance, V-O-L-A-N-S dot com or JohnLkington.com. And, and very happy to uh, talk to people. I answer all my emails. So if people want to send me an email, well, answer those. My email is john at volans.com. 
Thank you for that uh, generosity of spirit. And I must admit to all our viewers and listeners that that's how I found uh, John as well. Uh, he's very accommodating and he responded to this uh, email request for an interview for the Second Renaissance. So uh, he's a man of his word. Thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you immensely. And I just, I really hope and I really believe that we are in the midst of the Second Renaissance and it's up to us to make sure that it goes in the right direction. Good luck with that. Yes. And let's hope for not too many big uh, international conflicts and uh, that maybe we've evolved to the point where we don't have to go through that ritual of, uh, of transforming to the next level of consciousness. But um, watch this space, I guess. Thank you. Thank you so much, John, for spending time so generously. It is heartening to see one of the founding fathers, one of the mentors in this space, giving so generously to help scale the impact of the message. And thank you for being on The Second Renaissance. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to the show in your podcatcher and I'd be super grateful if you leave a review. For more information about the Second Renaissance and our work on sustainable innovation, please visit my website, www.andersumanilson.com. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. We hope that what we learn together on the Second Renaissance can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.